0: This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. And we'll be in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, going down to verse 30. If you don't have a Bible, those are Bibles on the side shelves that are provided. You'll find our text on page 807. In those Bibles, 807. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to take one of those. The print's a little bit small, but it's better than nothing. I'm noticing these things. I get a little bit older. I'm going to take my glasses out. Uh, Hopefully it'll be a blessing to you to have just a copy of God's Word with you as we go through it together. Let's go to Him and ask for His help now as we look to His Word. Lord, thank You for today that we are gathered Assemble together as your people to hear your word. Lord, we pray that you would speak to your people. And we pray that they would be built up into Christ. We pray that we would see Jesus. Not just appreciate a sermon or hear a sermon, but that we would see Christ. And Lord, we pray that if there is any dullness, any fogginess, in our heart and mind toward Christ, that You would blow it away. Give us clarity. Give us grace to see You for all that You are for us, all that You've done for us and what You've called us to do. Lord, I pray that there would be no one in this room that rejects Jesus. That now, that chains would be broken, eyes opened, captives set free, Would you do this, we pray, by the power of your spirit, for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sometimes the truth is hidden in plain sight. Um, It's likely why statistics tell us that most uh, accidents in the car happen within a block or so of your your home. We get close to home and we assume everything is as it's always been. And we're lulled to sleep and we miss what's actually there. Not only can familiarity kind of put us in a trance, but it can actually eat away at some of our spiritual receptors that take in the word and just life and beauty. I don't know if you've noticed this. Paul Tripp illustrates, he says, imagine that you've just moved to a new city and you get from your house to your office and you have to drive this gorgeously wooded road. It's huge, big, century-old trees. And the first time you drive down that road, it is worship to you. You're thinking of how gorgeous these trees are, how these branches actually lift themselves and point to the Creator. They're like arms giving glory to God. You're thinking to yourself how thankful you are that you get to drive every day on this road and be reminded of the One who created this physical splendor. Then, fast forward six weeks later, he writes, you're on the same road, pounding your dash, saying, this traffic drives me nuts. And you haven't seen a tree in three weeks. That's what familiarity does, doesn't it, to us. The trees are still there. The physical splendor is still there. The glory hasn't changed. We have. Something else is gripping our hearts more than the splendor of the grace of God to us in the gospel. Sure, you know the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Not only can it sometimes dull our senses, make us unaware of things, it can lead to hatred and and anger. One quote from a recent study, research study, I don't know how they did the research, said that although, quote, people believe that learning more about others leads to greater liking others, more information about others, on average, actually leads to liking them less. I I laughed out loud when I read that. Don't meet your heroes, they say. We'll see the effects of familiarity and spiritual blindness as we look to Jesus' return to His hometown in Nazareth in Luke 4 this morning. Remember, Luke is writing so that we would have a certainty about the things that we have been taught. Luke 1, verse 4. And He's outlined the fulfillment of of prophecy uh, in the birth of John the Baptist, the new Elijah who has come to prepare the way for the Messiah. And with Jesus, he's just carefully chronicled Gabriel's visit with Mary, the the virgin conception, so carefully that results in this child being born apart from the stain of sin. The birth of Jesus in a manger and the gospel announcement made to shepherds in the field. And then Luke has gone to great lengths to show us who Jesus really is, namely the Son of God, come to save sinners. The father declared him to be his son in chapter 3. In Jesus' genealogy, Luke connects him with Adam, who is the first son of God. And then his temptation in the wilderness that we saw last week, we see how Satan goes after that title of son of God, and Jesus triumphs over him in victory as the better Adam and true Israel. But we haven't yet heard from Jesus himself. There was that little glimpse when he was 12 years old, when his parents found him in the temple and he told them, I don't know why you're looking for me. She said, your father and I are looking for you. If you remember what Mary said, I don't know why you're looking for me. You should know I'd be in my father's house. At 12 years old, Jesus seems to clearly understand that he is the son of God. But today we will hear directly from Jesus in the form of a sermon, no less, about who he says that he is. And it's as if Luke in this story is giving us a paradigm, kind of a pattern of Jesus' entire life and ministry of self-revelation followed by rejection. That's what we're going to see. So here's the main point of this, this passage in the sermon this morning. Jesus is the good news for those that will receive him. Jesus is the good news for those that will receive him. We're going to see him clearly proclaim himself to be the Messiah and Savior in this text and We're going to see him rejected by those that know him best. Familiarity breeds contempt. And so Luke is simply asking us as we read it, how will we respond to Jesus? How will you respond to Jesus? If you're taking notes, we'll break the passage down to three scenes. Scene number one, we're going to see Jesus' message, his sermon that declares his identity. Verses 16 to 21. Then in scene two, Jesus is going to give a warning about rejecting him. A warning about rejecting him, verses 22 to 27. And then finally, we'll see his actual rejection by those in Nazareth, verses 28 to 30. The synagogue crowd appreciates Jesus' sermon at first, but they completely miss him. They hear the sermon, they miss the Savior. And So my prayer is that none of us would have that same thing said about us this morning, including the one who is preaching the sermon. So scene number one, let's think about Jesus' message. Look back up first with me at verse 14 for a moment. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. There Luke is going to summarize this time after Jesus' temptations in the wilderness before he gets to Nazareth. Look Look at the way that he describes it. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Luke doesn't record the specifics about this kind of tour through Galilee, but we do see the word about Jesus is spreading and the word is good. This idea of being glorified by all is language that's reserved for, for God. And I think this is a way of Luke just reminding us of Jesus' deity, the way that he's describing the response here. It's a pretty good review for a preacher. Glorified by all. He's also doing miracles, we know, and we can assume that from what, what the townspeople in Nazareth are going to say and expect him to do when he comes to their own town. This time in Jesus' ministry has been referred to sometimes as the Galilean spring. Relevant for us, we're in springtime and things are just generally, most of the, for the most part, happy. Things are blooming, blossoming, we're hopeful. That's kind of what's happening. You might call it a bit of a honeymoon period. But that's going about to, to change fairly quickly. Look at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. Let's stop there. Many of you know my story. Uh, I, I didn't become a Christian until I was in college. Uh, and so I grew up in a small town Uh, about an hour from here, and if you've been to a small town or grew up in a small town, you know that everybody knows everybody in a small town. My mom and dad actually met in high school in this same small town. And so people knew me through them and and then they knew me through me. And I was basically a hooligan growing up. I caused trouble, all kinds of trouble. I had a reputation for causing trouble. I was not a great student in school. I spent at least one night in the local jail. I'll, just, I'll leave my kind of pre-Jesus resume there for now. But God graciously opened my eyes to Christ in college. And then I began to pursue ministry and, and a theological uh, education. And the door opened for me to go back to my hometown as a youth minister while I was going to seminary. And you kind of see where, where I'm going. Initially, initially I knew there was, there was kind of an encouraging response from folks that in my hometown, praise God for His grace, that, that saved somebody like Travis. That's, that's great. And, and there was a little bit of a honeymoon period, but then that, that wore off. And I realized people still saw me as this young hooligan who wrapped their house when I was in middle school or got paddled in class for throwing spitballs. We did do corporal punishment in my school where I was there, or, or much worse. People knew my mom and dad and the history there, which I realized also kind of worked against me. And so, so, listen, I'm not trying to compare myself to Jesus, simply the circumstance. Now, Jesus going back to Nazareth is, is much different. Uh, he didn't have to overcome a sinful past. He didn't have a sinful past. He was the opposite of me growing up. But the, pe- the people did see him grow up before their eyes. And therefore, they thought that they knew him and likely assumed that he was very much like them. And so we're going to see how that backfires. Here in this early description, we see also a picture of the way synagogues functioned in Jesus' day. Uh, Luke's description here is one of the oldest descriptions we have of synagogue worship. Um, but we kind got of to put things together from other places also. But the synagogue was a place where Jewish men would gather to read, expound, and debate the scriptures. There would be a kind of a service, and it would begin with the singing of psalms. There would be the, the reading of the Shema from Deuteronomy 6 and prayer. There would be a reading from the law, a book of From either from Genesis to Deuteronomy, and then a reading from the prophets. And then um, we need to remember, of course, they're not reading from from bound Bibles like we have, but from scrolls that contained the Scriptures, these very ornate, kind of large and and ceremonial scrolls that would be taken out and unrolled and and read. The local synagogue authorities would invite people to read and preach, and Jesus here is invited to, to read and preach this day. And so Luke tells us that he stood up to read, which I think is a, is a sign of, of reverence uh, for the word of God, um, because he's going to actually sit down to preach, which was the custom the standing for the word, sitting for the sermon. Maybe we could, we could think about that, what that would be like here. But he would actually sit down to, to do that. And then after the sermon, the, the service would close with the ironic benediction, and then the people would say, amen. That was the order of service. But did you notice there in verse 16 that going to synagogue was Jesus' custom? He was in the habit of meeting with God's people for corporate worship, fellowship, and instruction, even when, as we'll soon see, there were lots of issues in the synagogue with the people there. And I just think that's good for us to see, to see Jesus' desire to be with God's people. He's he's not this picture of kind of a roving, hippie, Any establishment guy who's just kind of going around doing his own thing. He's actually with the people of God, worshiping God. And he calls us to do the same, right? To regularly assemble together, Hebrews 10, 25, to encourage one another, not to be lone rangers. So like to actually follow Jesus is to help others follow Jesus and be with others who are following Jesus. But I just want to ask you, is that the way that you're thinking about your own discipleship in the context of other believers in a local church, following Jesus together, helping others to follow him. And we see all these connections in the New Testament between following Jesus and loving God's people, being with people, God's people in the church. Here's just one that I'll, I'll just mention for you to think about. First John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So we can't say, can we, that I love God, I love Jesus, all about that, just not a big fan of the church, not a big fan of people, not a big fan of those, those people that, that are very different than me, that have those problems that, that I know they're going to talk to me about. No, there's actually a, a connection between our love for God and our love for others. So even here, Jesus is with God's people regularly, and we should take note of that, so should we be. So Jesus stands up to read, but what would he read? What would be his text to preach from? To this packed house, likely, of his hometown, friends, and family. Look at verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. And we'll stop there. Likely the readings are on a schedule here. So it's, it's time for Isaiah to be read in God's providence. Um, the official hands that, that kind of scroll to him. But Jesus seems to have chosen his text, doesn't he? He seems to have picked the place that he wanted to read. And let's see what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, "Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." So Jesus is reading from Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. And Luke also includes a section from Isaiah 58, verse 6, that phrase about setting the oppressed free, likely to draw the attention there to the theme of release, which is a a characteristic of Jesus' ministry, his messianic ministry. I know this sounds like a short sermon, kind of one sentence. This is fulfilled in me. I think we can assume that there's more that Jesus uh, said. Of course, there's going to be this dialogue that happens in a minute, but there's a lot in this one sentence, isn't there? He's saying, I am the Messiah. I am the one. I am the one Isaiah prophesied about. And today, this message is fulfilled in your own hearing. That word Messiah means anointed one. And Jesus is saying, that is who Isaiah prophesied about. That's who he was promising that would come. And this is what he promised he would do. And he's saying, I am that man, and this is what I will do. Now, as people have, have read and understood and reflected on what Jesus is saying here, what Isaiah is saying here from Israel, even now to our own day, as we think about this, the mission of the Messiah, which is correlated in many ways to the mission of the church. There's been a lot of different understandings and some confusion about his mission. Around these verses in particular, actually. Many have come away from these words concluding that Jesus is saying, he's kind of describing himself as a bit of a a social liberator and Messiah. And so so we see verses like this be the foundation uh, for for something like liberation theology. He's portrayed there as a a social, political, economic revolutionary. And if that's true about Jesus, we, we would be right to assume there's something about The mission of the church that would also be involved in that that mission, that direction. The church's mission, according to that kind of thinking, would be to confront society's structures so that they can be transformed. Essentially, the church exists to serve the the poor, the disenfranchised, the oppressed, to free them from their social, racial, political, economic plight. And so we we need to ask that question carefully. Is that what Jesus is And and particularly, we know this is relevant for us today in a in a world where we're saying the right thing, being found on the right side of history, virtue signaling in in various ways is that, that, that the pressure is on. And you just you pick your issue of where you would you would land on that. But I just want to point your attention back to the text and look at what Isaiah says and the way that Jesus. Kind of kind of walks this out here. Pay special attention to the verbs there. The Messiah is anointed, notice, by the Spirit to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to captives and, and recovering sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So these, are, these words are speaking words. They're preaching words. And of course, we're going to see Jesus throughout the Gospels heal the sick and give, give sight to the blind. Um, but the Messianic mission statement highlights the announcement here of good news. And in many ways, those miracles that he's going to do are are like sermon illustrations that highlight who he is and and, and what he's come to do and this deep reality that that is true in each of us. And if that sets the tone for the mission of the church, then we would come away saying the center of the church's mission would be preaching the gospel, preaching the good news. And if you look at the context of Isaiah 61 and the, the ministry of Jesus, we're helped to see there's a, certainly a spiritual component in these realities. In Isaiah, the poor are, are lumped in with the brokenhearted and, and all who mourn. They're, they're the humble mourning who trust in the Lord, wait on His rescue. And the poor in Luke are, are certainly the economic, economically impoverished, but they're also those who are, who are spiritually poor. The same is true as we think about those Isaiah has in view as captives and the, uh, the oppressed. In the Old Testament, the kind of captivity and oppression were results of exile, which going back even to that imagery in the garden, we know is a result of sin. Jesus is shown to be the great deliverer from sin. The same is true for blindness. The imagery of light and darkness runs throughout Scripture, and our need for seeing God when we are in darkness comes by His grace. We need eyes to see. And I think it's helpful just to be reminded that that he's saying all these things are fulfilled today, synagogue attendees, in your hearing. In other words, these things apply to to you. I'm coming to preach the good news to you, which implies something about them, and they're not going to like what it implies. That they themselves are spiritually blind and, and in captivity and in need of a Savior. The year of the Lord's favor is this reference to the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament. And that theme, of course, is a release from debt, debt being forgiven, property that's been lost to to pay debts being regained, slaves released and redeemed. Which we can't miss the the spiritual imagery there. Interestingly, when Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61, if you're looking at that passage, you'll notice he leaves off the end of verse 2 which actually speaks about the day of vengeance of the Lord. He leaves leaves that section off. D.A. Carson summarizes his reasoning for that um, this way. He says he's keeping the spotlight on the message of the Lord's favor rather than judgment. Friends, we know the day of vengeance will come. Jesus will come again as a judge. But he's saying he is coming now as a savior. He's coming now to release the captives, to forgive the debts, to cleanse the lepers, to give sight to the blind, to proclaim good news. Kevin DeYoung um, and Greg Gilbert wrote a little book on the mission of the church. And you can just Google that. I think you'll find it helpful if you don't have it to read it and just to think about how we put passages like this together and we think about what is the, the mission specifically of the church And this is the way he kind of summarizes his thoughts on this passage. He says, Jesus' mission is not a mission of structural change and social transformation, but a mission to announce the good news of his saving power and merciful reign to all those brokenhearted, that is, poor, all those poor enough to believe. And this is the church's mission. I think we see this, don't we, in other places where we see Jesus commission the disciples, even we see Jesus commission the apostle Paul. You remember the way that Jesus speaks about Paul? Same author of of, of Acts that writes Luke, Acts 26, we read this. Jesus speaking to Paul, But rise and stand up upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, friends. That is our mission. And if you read it, you'll realize it's it's very impossible, apart from God's grace, isn't it, to open people's eyes to see Jesus Christ. And so we go prayerfully. We go dependent upon the Holy Spirit, and we go boldly, proclaiming the gospel, the good news, to those who need and will hear it. Jesus saying, "I am the Messiah. This is my mission." Now, should we read this and, and then say, well, then we can conclude that he doesn't reach out and love those who are actually poor and blind and imprisoned and, and sick. No, that's not true at all. And sadly, many, in many ways, we've, it's easy to take the, the pendulum and swing it all the way on the other side and somehow be blind to those that are suffering even right around us at our doorstep. What we see in Jesus is that these these needy people that are far from God are the most receptive to his message. The, most, the ones who know they need a physician. Blind Bartimaeus calling out for him. Those furthest and poorest and weakest most easily see their need for him. And friends, we are called as a body to love our neighbors and to go and do good works among them that will serve as a, a platform for the gospel that we preach. This is something that's very near and dear to the heart of our congregation. As we think about where God has providentially placed us and the opportunity that we have to serve those poor among us, that God has placed a a faithful, we pray, church here in the midst of people that are hurting badly and dealing with all kinds of issues, that we could proclaim the good news to them and love them faithfully. What a blessing, what an opportunity and, and responsibility before us. So we are to care about all the suffering in our neighborhood and across the world, but especially about the spiritual suffering. Friends, there is good news to tell. And we want to be a church that's full of mercy and mercy ministries, but the greatest mercy is the mercy that comes through Jesus Christ. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoners free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. So Jesus sits down and says, basically, this is talking about me. I'm the Messiah. But that message then comes with a warning. So let's look at scene two, Jesus' warning. And you see it in verse 22. It captures, verse 22 really captures the tension that's at work in the minds of all those that knew Jesus from the time that he was a boy. Look there at verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son. Right, so we see, we see this, this, this picture often in the gospels. Amazement and marveling does not equal acceptance with Jesus. It's not synonymous with following Jesus. So they're marveling at his gracious words coming from his mouth. I think that implies there were more words that are not recorded here, but they're not sure about the preacher himself. Aren't you Joseph's son? Come on now, Jesus. You're saying Isaiah the prophet was talking about you. I mean, we're all excited about your call to ministry and what others are saying about you, but, but we know you. This isn't you. You're like us. So they clearly do not believe in him. And Jesus perceives this. There are times in the Gospels we see Jesus do this. He knows the thoughts of others, whether it's from his divine nature or from a, a special revelation from the Father to him. He 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 knows and he perceives right through the thoughts of those sitting in the in the pews there in the synagogue. And so he shows himself here to be a faithful prophet. He knows and responds to what they are thinking with a sharp warning. Look at verse 23. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable and is in his hometown. Here, Jesus is, I think, appealing to some popular, well-known proverbs or sayings that show the people that he knows their minds. And the meaning is very plain. Jesus, if you're a doctor, uh, go ahead and heal yourself. We're going to hear that phrase again on the cross, aren't we? If you're the Son of God, why don't you just come down and save yourself? We've heard about what you did in Capernaum. Do it here. Go ahead and prove what we've all heard about you. Go ahead and prove it in front of us. We're not going to believe until we have the proof. I think that's the proof right there on the phone. It's calling to tell us it's true. Jesus concludes here, doesn't he, that no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. He has just proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. Another word to say that is the acceptable year of the Lord, but the people don't accept him. And you need to see that image We will be accepted by God and receive his favor if we accept Jesus, his son. These people do not accept Jesus for who he is. The rejection of the prophets was a common theme in the Old Testament. And it's going to be a theme in Jesus' own ministry as well. He's going to be rejected by his own. And Jesus now turns to to warn the people about their unbelief. And he's going to use examples of prophets who were also rejected and faced uh, kind of the persecution in their ministries. Elijah and Elisha. So first, look at verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and the great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. This is a account from 1 Kings 17. If you remember what happened there, Elijah runs into this woman gathering sticks so that she can make a fire and bake bread for her and her son. She was a Gentile from this land of Sidon and a widow. But what we, we also know is this is going to be her last meal. She says, I'm going to make this bread, we're going to eat it, and then we're going to die. They're starving because of this great famine. And, and she's going to eat it and then die, verse 12 of chapter 17. But Elijah then tells her this, he says, why don't you go and, and make some bread for me and I'll eat it. That doesn't sound like the way you would think he would, he would meet her needs, but he does. Go, go make some bread for me. And if you do this, God will actually supply all of your needs. All your flour and oil will, will never run out as long as there's a famine. And amazingly, this Gentile widow woman trusts the words of Elijah and throughout the time of the famine, She's sustained. The flower, this miracle happens. The flour and oil don't run out. So why did she trust Elijah and the people of Nazareth won't trust Jesus? They have all the promises, all the stories, all these rumors even about who Jesus is. They've seen him grow up. She doesn't demand proof of the miracle first. She just trusts the prophet. And without any evidence, she gives him her last meal. What a great example of someone realizing that they have nothing left. And she trusted and trusted all that she had to God. Certainly we see the logic in Jesus' words of blessed are the poor. And that we're all poor until we actually can see it. But the people of Nazareth do not see it. They don't see themselves as poor and needy for Jesus. They had no reason to trust him. They were respectable, synagogue attending, solid citizens of Nazareth. And they're actually insulted to be compared with this lowly Gentile woman. But Jesus is not done insulting them for their good. Verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. This account comes from 2 Kings 5. Naaman was the commander of a Syrian army, another Gentile, but this time someone in, in, in authority, great power, so, so not, not physically, materially poor, but he adds one more complicating factor to the equation. He has leprosy. So Naaman is a leper. So he's an example of someone who would be seen as doubly unclean, Gentile, leper. Elijah then instructs the king of Israel to send Naaman over to him. He sends a messenger, messenger to him saying, go wash seven times in the Jordan and you'll be cleansed. Listen to Naaman's response. And there's a lot of expectation that's familiar in in our passage in Luke 4. 2 Kings 5, verse 11. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand up and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. So We see his own pride at work. The prophet is calling him to humble himself to be clean. So what changed his mind? Apparently he was. Well, his servants came to him and said, Hey, man, you're being proud. How can you, how can you do this? If, if, if he's given you this great thing to do to say that you'll be clean, why wouldn't you do it? Humble yourselves and you will be cured. He's told you how to be clean. Obey and you will be. And he did. He did. He humbled himself, went to the Jordan River and washed himself seven times and was miraculously healed of his leprosy. So you see what Jesus is saying to the folks at Nazareth. You have something to learn from the wisdom of this Gentile leper. He had greater faith than you have. Your spiritual pride is keeping you from being made clean. Friend, that can happen with us today. Even when we sit here listening to the sermon that Jesus confronting the people of Nazareth with their pride, he is telling them that they are poor and needy and they don't believe him, that they are actually spiritual lepers. They're far from God. Even though they think that they're close, they're captives needing to be released, set free. From the captivity of sin. That's what sin does. It it puts a veil over our eyes to kind of give the impression that we're doing fine. And and we are doing fine in our own eyes. But we can be captives, enslaved to, to lust and money and pride, guilt, ultimately to Satan. And Jesus has come to set the captives free. But friend, you have to know first that you're captive. As the hymn says, let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Jesus came to set us free by living a righteous, sinless life and then paying the debt that we owed for our sin. We deserve God's wrath for our rebellion against him. He's holy, he will not overlook sin, but he's mercifully sent Jesus to die in our place to pay the price. And He rose from the grave as a sign that it is finished. And His death was enough to pay the price. And now He offers forgiveness. It's the year of Jubilee. A righteous standing with God. Eternal life and joy with Him. Will we have Him? Will we come to Jesus? Friend, if you're not a Christian, my call to you is to come to Jesus. To turn from your sin and put your faith and trust In Jesus. Receive Him. Follow Him. I'd love to talk to you more about that if you have a question about what it means to be a Christian. Turn to Jesus. You'll love hymns like this Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. Venture on Him. Venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Friend, what a gift to know that we're helpless and Jesus is our great helper. He's come to save us and redeem us. I pray that you would come to him. Those in the synagogue in Nazareth do not. They do not humble themselves. They do not believe in Jesus. Let's look briefly at this last scene in verses 28 and 30 and the way that they actually respond to Jesus' sermon. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they would throw him down the cliff. So they they had clearly heard enough. Paul says in Romans 8 7 that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. What an illustration. What a clear example. They're not set on their own righteous standing now before God. They're they're insulted by the gospel that declares their need for Jesus. So they attempt to kill him. They seize him, they drag him to the edge of town to seek to throw him off a cliff. Perhaps this is the first step in a a formal stoning. Throw someone down the cliff until they're close to death and then finish them off with a stoning. So they're accusing him of blasphemy and they're moving directly to the death penalty. Friends, this is a preview, isn't it, of Jesus' entire ministry. It's a preview for the early church. If you read the book of Acts, the message of the gospel brings with it both positive and negative responses, um, joy and persecution. This message of, of Gentile inclusion that Jesus is preaching here is going to be received with rejoicing by some and wrath by others. But friends, that was always God's intent. The passage that Jesus reads in Isaiah 61, it ends this way. Verse 11, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as the garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. All the nations will praise Him. That is God's plan. What a great missionary God, missionary passage that we have. But these folks are not receiving God's grace. And they're going to quickly realize that they can try, but they're not going to be able to take Jesus' life away. It's up to Him to lay it down when He will and take it up again. I think it's interesting that throwing him off a cliff almost revisits that temptation from Satan. Throw yourself down and and see if angels will will catch you if you're really the son of God. And and here it's the the people that are throwing him down. It's possible they're wanting to... to, to, Luke has an emphasis there, but that that doesn't happen. Look at verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. Uh, We don't know what this is exactly. It seems to be some kind of a, a miracle, just... Just walking right through them. And if it is, it's the only miracle that they're going to see. They're wanting to see a miracle. They're wanting to see these things. And really what they're going to see is the back of Jesus walking away. And what a terrible, terrifying sight. The author of of life, the offer of grace walking away. Jesus has not returned to Nazareth, as far as we can tell. He doesn't come back to his hometown. It's a preview of how things will go but it's not his time yet. It's just the beginning. So Jesus has spoken. He's the Messiah, the Son of God, the anointed one on mission to proclaim the good news to those who would know their need of him. The poor, the lame, the captive, the blind, the oppressed. And then he commissions us to do the same. Jesus preaches the gospel by pointing to himself. We preach the gospel by pointing to Jesus. And we preach the gospel to all. As one poor man to another. One beggar telling another beggar where to find food. One leper telling another where to be cleansed. One former slave to another speaking about freedom. A former blind person telling the other where to find light. The gospel is for everyone. One prestigious British church had three mission churches under its care. And on the first Sunday of the new year, all the members of, that, of the mission churches would come to the parent church for this combined communion service. On one such occasion, the pastor looked down and saw a man kneeling on a on a rail, a communion rail, in prayer, who was a former burglar, and he's kneeling next to the Supreme Court judge, or a Supreme Court judge in England, the very judge who had sent him to jail for seven years. And so, after his release, the burglar had come to Christ. He'd been converted, now was involved in this mission. And so, after the service, the judge comments to the pastor, "Hey, did you see? He was next to me at communion." And he just said something like, what a miracle of God's grace. And the pastor just nodded his head. But the judge reminded him and asked him, who do you think I'm talking about? I'm not talking about the burglar. I'm talking about me. He said, I was taught from earliest infancy to live as a gentleman. That my word was to be my bond. That I was to say my prayers, go to church, take communion and so on. I went through Oxford, obtained my degrees. And eventually I became a judge. I was sure I was all I needed to be. Though in fact, too, pastor, I was a great sinner. And it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. He said, I am the greater miracle. Jesus is the good news for all that will receive Him. I pray that you would receive Him today. That you would praise Him day for the miracle of his grace in your own life and seek to follow him and proclaim that news to others. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, it is a great miracle to be born again and to have eyes to see, to follow you. Lord, we pray that you would be doing that work among us, not just today, but week in and week out as we gather and as we scatter throughout the the neighborhood and the city and we go to our workplaces, that we would be faithful in sharing this good news, announcing this wonderful news of forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. Lord, we pray that you would give us a humility to, to know who it is that we are, who it is that we were, Who you? where we were when you found us, and that we would go after those kinds of people, the people that are self-assured, the people that think they have no hope and there's nothing left for them. Lord, we pray we would be the bearers of good news. Lord, we pray for beautiful feet across this congregation who carry the good news to those who are far from you. What good news it is. We love you and worship you, and we praise you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.